0: Hello, uh, it is me, Jeremy, and Robin here to just do a little quick introduction here. Um, I've posted on social media a couple places, uh, but I'm a doctor now, kind of, sort of. Uh, I defended my dissertation, and all I got to do is like kind of the submission stuff and paperwork, and I'll be a doctor. Um, so that was sort of stressful and uh, has definitely affected the timing of the podcast, um, but I realized that uh you know found out my dissertation that felt great and then it dawned on me that i had to move in 72 hours so uh we're not going to get any of the three quarters done episodes out yet uh, which is too bad because there's some really good stuff there but uh what i did want to do is sort of revisit some of my favorite episodes from the past so uh, and by revisit i mean just reposting them so this is essentially a rerun of some stuff way back in season four I did a series of episodes on Robert Bremner and kind of the Bremner family, who are big uh, Scottish music um, publishers in the 18th century. And I don't know, I listened back to it today and it's pretty good. There's a good mix of primary source research and kind of audiobook reading and tune playing it's earlier in the show so there's quite a bit more of me talking than music playing but uh especially with these Brenner episodes i think it's sort of worth it so anyway i'm just going to let it go as is so that you've got something in the feed and uh as sort of a thank you to everybody for hanging out and supporting me uh as i worked on this dissertation um yeah if you want to support the show you can go to patreon.com twog. you can also buy my new album bannocks of barley meal um in fact, let's let's do a Bannocks of Barley Meal track and then we'll have the episode. Bannocks of Barley Meal is by far the best album I've put out, I think. Um, and it's also the one that the fewest people have checked out. So give it a listen on Bandcamp. I'm hoping to get the discs out soon. Um, but, you know, I just had to return my computer with all the disc stuff on it. So it might take a little bit of getting situated in North Dakota. Um, but this track we're going to listen to... What's the track, Robin? What are we going to play? It is a track made up of William Lytton tunes, I think, as well as um, Cochley or Coughlin. This is uh, <laughs> Rakes of Westmeath. Kissing and Drinking, Kissing and Flirting, and Rakes of Westmeath is what this one is called. So, um, yeah, this track, <laughs> I sort of didn't like it at first. Um, or I, didn't, I liked it at first. Kissing and Flirting, Kissing and Drinking, which are both from William Lytton's manuscript, and then the Rakes of Westmeath from Cochley, I think. Um, <laughs> this used to just be Ellen Pipes But I realized I could overdub it with um, Border Pipes, so that's what we did Anyway, so here is Kissing, drinking, flirting, rakes Westmeath, and Robin Complaining about it Yeah, tell him, tell him how much you It's a good song though, right Robin? You like it? He doesn't like it nearly as much As he likes milk, he said uh, Anyway, uh, so yeah, check it out And uh, you can check out the band camp See that album And then we'll just jump right into the first episode of the Robert Bremner series of tunes. And, um, yeah, we'll see how many of those I get in a row before I am able to do an episode again. Uh, Anyway, cheers. Uh Welcome to Dog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, the weekly show where I explore the likely repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers using historic music collections, written for bagpipes or not, uh, and played on Inland Pipes, Highland Pipes, and Whistles. Let's hear some tunes. This is going to be another kind of long episode, Wound up doing a fair amount of research into Robert Bremner and his family. I basically have an entire album's worth of music to play, then I'm going to wind up cutting it into two episodes because there's sort of too many parts that are hard to, to connect. This week's episode, we're going to talk a lot about Robert Bremner and kind of his relationship to church music and some very various other important heavy hitters in Scottish music in the mid 18th century and earlier, like Alan Ramsey and William McGibbon. And next week, we'll talk about the Bremner family a little bit more. um, Or not next week, but next episode, we'll talk about the Bremner family, uh, including his brother James, who was also a pretty accomplished musician and wound up in a tune book uh, in America. uh, And seemingly was pretty good friends with one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia. So we'll play through some of those tunes, as well as kind of revisiting some Robert Bremner um, Scottish country dance stuff. So our set list and a brief description of where they're coming from. We're going to start with church music. So we're going to play a hymn called Elgin, followed by a hymn called Aberdeen or St. Paul's that both appear in Bremner's church music collection. Then we're going to play a tune from Bremner's, uh, one of his earlier publications, uh, it's after the church one, but it's uh, kind of the earlier popular music one. This is a collection of tunes for harp and or harpsichord and voice. Uh, the lyrics written by Alan Ramsey and the settings by Bremner. So we're going to play Mary Scott, which is a very popular tune. Uh, then we're going to play kind of his next big uh, git for... Finding popular music to publish is William McGibbon. So, we're going to play several tunes from William McGibbon's collections that Bremner printed, beginning with She Rose and Let Me In. And then to kind of compare it, I'm going to play the Aria da Camera setting for She Rose and Let Me In as well, so you can see how William McGibbon adds to tunes. Then, in the William McGibbon collection, uh, we'll return to Cumbernauld House and the Bottom of the Punch Bowl. Uh, then, we're going to jump over to kind of Scottish reel books or country dance books. Uh, this is his earlier country dance book, and it doesn't actually have the dances in it. So um, the tunes we're going to play from there are The Carl, Came Over the Croft, Cuzzle Together, Blue Bridges on Highland Pipes, and Cuzzle Together on Small Pipes. And then we'll finish off with Miss Blair's Reels on Illin Pipes. So... Uh, there is that. Next week's episode, uh, kind of our little mini interlude episode, you're going to be able to listen to... I'm not quite sure what all I'm going to put in there, but you will. I'm certainly going to have a setting of Miss Blair's reel and um, the Carl came over the crafts on Highland Pipes. So if you want to hear those tunes on Highland Pipes rather than Illin Pipes, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and check that out next week. It feels like we should have some sort of a musical interlude before... I resume talking about the history of Robert Brebner. Uh, and so since the the first bit of context for kind of understanding my playthrough of these Brebner tunes is talking about the Money Musk revival and kind of the state of church music, uh, it seems fitting to play a tune that doesn't actually, but sort of relates to that. Uh, it's fitting to me since, you know, the last full episode was all about devils and demons and fairies playing bagpipes that this one's going to talk so much about church music. But um, So we're going to have a little bit of a break here. This is another Robert Bremner tune from the later uh, or the, the earlier real collection Uh, this is a tune called the grant's rant and uh, you might recognize it eventually the tune gets kind of slowed down and softened a bit uh, or turned into a stress bay for some folks Uh, but it becomes the melody that robert burns uses for green grow the ashes oh but it is so different that i did not recognize it until doing a little bit of research um, after already having recorded it so this is me playing pretty closely to how bremner writes it as the grant's rant so the way that this tune sort is connected to what we're talking about today. Um, the reason it's called the Money Musk Revival is because it's at a church in Aberdeenshire run by Money Musk, uh, the baronet of Money Musk, who was Sir Archibald Grant. So the Grant's Rant, there we go. Uh, anyway, here is the Grant's Rant. <music> Place to start with this is uh i guess to talk about the monty musk revival and um the great awakening maybe uh, at least that's what we call it in the united states it's kind of this this big um change in attitude and kind of personal relationship with christ and religious movements uh kind of growing out of that and it's funny, In uh, we call it the greater, uh, Great Awakening now. Um, during the time, the 1740s and 30s in New England, where it was really taking hold, at least that's the only place I've, I've read a book about it. Um, there's all kinds of, new, of names for these people. New Lighters, uh, Whitefieldians, one of the best known of these traveling ministers was George Whitefield. Uh, go around, give talks in churches or out in public and just had this really big awakening and... Rejuvenation of religious fervor. Uh, Whitefield is from uh, England, I think, and wound up giving some talks in Scotland as well. Uh, just outside of Glasgow is sort of one of the most famous of his. Um, but it, it seems like that is a separate thing altogether from this Money Musk revival, and I'm not sure how much the Money Musk revival is even a thing. Um, I just couldn't really find a lot about it under that title. It does seem like Sir Archibald Grant is pretty important. So, like, Laird, Money Musk. Um, and basically what's happening is... Some places say the 1740s. You start to see it in newspapers. Uh, in 1755, there's an article that shows up in Scots magazine... That kind of talks about what's going on. But essentially money musk is there's a an english officer station near aberdeen and there's this new style of singing that's a little bit more controlled and so he gets this guy to come in and teach the choir to sing uh, a little bit more kind of basic a little bit more rudimentary here's how to sing and the funny thing t- to me anyway the newspaper talks about this just that the big development here is that this english officer that's going around leading the choir like he has a uh, pitch pipe so part of me is like, oh, so he's he's just in tune. That's the big, uh, the big accomplishment. Okay. So the article here says, uh, "quote We hear that a new method of singing the church tunes has been lately introduced with good success into several congregations in this neighborhood. The person who teaches it goes from one parish to another and carries some of the best singers along with him, who join with and under his direction are very uh, assisting to the learners." By his skill in vocal music and the use of a small instrument he calls a pitch pipe, he has made a great reform upon this part of divine service. So, why does it need to be reformed? Is sort of the question, and uh, and it seems like there are, are several explanations for this, or kind of what's going on. I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure that I've got this right. What I what I would assume so the state of music. Prior to this, prior to this revival in churches, in Scottish churches. And there there isn't a distinction maybe between Church of Scotland or secessionist churches. And I'm not, so I'm not sure quite where these are happening. Um, like, I, I think that music had become, if I'm, if I'm getting this right, music had kind of fallen out of favor as part of the Calvinist stuff. And there are far fewer songs being sung Is sort of my grasping of this uh i could be wrong about this but that there's like 12 tunes and that some people's relationship with those 12 tunes uh had maybe gotten pretty dull they're pretty bored by this and so they would just start adding embellishments as they chose as as they saw fit um and would kind of add extra notes and grace notes and kind of extra vibrato and do all kinds of Uh, adjustments as as they felt moved to in order to kind of expand this repertoire from the 12 psalms that everybody was always singing and it wound up being it wound up being this really individualistic thing and this is why i think i feel like there is a connection to the great awakening like at least where i have read about it in new england in the 18th century the great awakening was so much about kind of personal choice, personal relationship to God and personal expression of that faith. Um, You know, we get these big names like uh, George Whitefield and John Edwards, but uh, I read this pretty great book by an author named Doug Winiarski called um, Shadows, Where Darkness Falls in the Land of Light, I think. Um, But it won the Bancroft for history. Um, I think it won the Bancroft. It's massive. It's this massive book. But he does a really good job of pointing out that you know, really understanding the Great Awakening and these big religious revivals, it's like you got to look at not so much um, Edwards and Whitefield, uh, but this guy James Davenport, who's sort of like the epitome of personal relationship to God and kind of feeling the feeling the the spirit, as it were. And so Davenport kind of led these big renegade uh, rebellious church services out in the open uh kind of the the pitch crescendo that they went to the point of kind of rejecting ministers and preachers as kind of getting in the way between themselves and god and uh uh, a couple times davenport like basically held book burnings of burning religious books that would keep them from a close relationship and at, at one of these uh gatherings he became so upset that he started burning his clothes as well um and that's sort of how it picks up, but this kind of individual relationship makes me think that I wonder if the presence of Whitefield and people kind of doing that, those sort of revival things in some parts of Scotland anyway, wasn't uh, leading to that kind of, I need to have a more direct relationship with God and I'm going to sing this song that the way the spirit moves me to. Um, I could be dead wrong about that, but it just, it really seemed familiar to me. Uh, anyway, if you, you can imagine that if everyone is singing a psalm and, you know, half the room is adding a bunch of grace notes or extra notes or holding notes for longer vibrato, it's not going to have a particularly, you know, it's not going to be terribly pleasing to the ear, especially not if you're inside that church or in in the Kirk. And so what Monty Musk or uh, Archibald, Lord Archibald, Sir Archibald Grant is doing is getting this English officer to, get people to all sing the parts and also sing the uh, choruses and harmonies and sort of make it good enough that way. Uh, And the hope being that people will sing well. So into this kind of environment comes Robert Bremner. So Bremner, his first publication, as far as I can tell, when he was just selling music in Edinburgh, is... Uh, a discussion of church music uh, he was first commissioned to kind of pick out and expand the repertoire i think is what's going on beyond these 12 tunes and then eventually he republished those uh, his church music psalms and and other types of songs um he published that with a book about how to sing uh, brief rudiments of of music and it is hilarious i think is a fair way to characterize it um you can read it all online. Uh, the National Library of Scotland. Scotland has it up. You can probably read it on archive.org uh, as well. But I'll, I'll link to the National Library of Scotland, which is the one that I read. But you get the sense that, you know, Brender's irritated. He was hired by, uh, I think, the Edinburgh Town Council or some kind of community um, organization in Edinburgh to try to um, make a agreed-upon repertoire of tunes. And there's some interesting... There's just some really interesting um, tidbits in this this book and this this picture of what music at churches was like in the 1750s, uh, and if not beforehand. But it's you know he's trying to expand it. It seems like when his his book first came out, that was just expanded church tunes. Everything was great. Um, people were singing those tunes and it sounded wonderful. But with pretty quick succession, it, people were making their own adjustments and it was no longer pleasant to hear so he publishes a book to go along with it but you will see there's these themes that come up again and again and again uh in (laughs) in brender the guy does not like vibrato uh he has another book that comes out just on the performance of concert music where he goes off on a bit of a tangent about how much uh the short shake as it is called or uh treble low as he calls it um, how much it ruins music and ruins harmonies and it's just terrible um, but yeah, anyway, so some cool information that shows up in Bremner's treatise um, about the state of things in Scotland in the 1750s, he says that if the Psalms were altered every month, it wouldn't matter because everybody could read print. So if you just put out new lyrics, you could just change the lyrics. But what's happening in these churches is you've got some new organist or a new musician shows up and he throws out all the tunes they're playing, decides he's going to make some additions or subtractions, and that's going to be the way everybody does it. And because no one is educated, no one can read sheet music, they can all read words, but they can't read sheet music. So even if that guy that came in and said he was the boss and this is what we should be doing, even if he had sheet music, it wouldn't matter. So... Uh, so that's one problem. I just, I love this kind of little tidbit that like, oh yeah, mid 18th century, Bremner's just taking it for granted that everybody in a church can read. Anyway, so, so that's the frustration that keeps on happening as people come in and change it uh, throughout the old stuff and write something new. Uh, and then <laughs> what is happening is like, essentially old members of the congregation, somebody that was there years ago, they liked the way he did it. And then every person that has come since, they... You know, claim is just an upstart and Bremner is getting attacked for the same thing. And if you read that Scots Magazine issue, I'm not sure if there's a public, I'll I'll send you where I I read it on an archive for a database that I have access to through my university. So I'm not sure if you can find old versions of the Scots Magazine to read for free anywhere. But uh, even the Scots Magazine published an article about the Monty Musk revival, not in that name, but about how the singing was changing. And they got letters immediately complaining about it. And uh, people saying this new fangled nonsense, I'm not going to do it. You know, the way I, the way I sing in church is I echo whenever the hell I want. and I'm not going to have some young kid there with a pitch pipe sheep herd instrument, tell me what to do. Um, and Bremner's whole thing is that, you know, this is not new, like this is old, this is the old way to do it. And uh Bremner's sort of up against it because um, because people aren't musically trained that are singing in churches, they're not singing the four parts that you know, the original psalm books uh, back from the 1600s, uh, where the psalm books came from, like they're not singing all the four parts, they're just singing the tenor part and poorly. and so it's they're getting bored with it and it's not pleasing to the ear. And that basically means that every church you go into is a nightmare to listen to the music rather than pleasing. Uh, one of his examples of this, he, he specifically goes on and on about how much he hates vibrato. Um, he supposedly severed ties, the Wikipedia page on Bremner says that he severed ties with his uh, violin kind of master teacher in Italy, um, Francesco Geminiani. I, I didn't see where he severed ties with him, but he writes about, he definitely has a different opinion where uh, Geminiani is quoted in one of his things saying that you should do it all the time. His instructor, uh, Gimignani published uh, several little treatises and books on on how to do it. So yeah, indeed, Gimignani advocates the use of the close quake as often as possible. Uh, he writes, it may express majesty, dignity, etc., but making it shorter, lower, and softer, it may denote affliction, fear, etc., and when it is made on short notes, it only contributes to make their sounds more agreeable. And for this reason, it should be made use of as often as possible. Um, so this is kind of in the footnotes from a published version of uh, some thoughts on performance of concert music that Bremner wrote, the scholar kind of edit editorializing it added in these quotes from Bremner's old uh, instructor. But yeah, Bremner hates it, hates it so much. Um, this is what brumner says about it this grace has a resemblance to that wavering found given by two of the unisons of an organ a little out of tune or to the voice of one who is paralytic a song from whom would be one continued tremolo from beginning to end not a fan of the vibrato which i know we have talked about on this podcast before Uh, but it does tell me that I, i definitely had read some things about kind of bagpiping and pied rock in the 18th century and earlier, and just how many different schools of thought, or schools of play and approaches, and how wild they were, Um, (laughs) and it just really makes it sound... too too often my takeaway from from doing research into kind of 18th century music is, I don't know, just about anything goes. Uh, You can sort of do what you want, because probably somebody was doing some wild stuff uh, already. Anyway, so... Bremner's big argument is, you know, what you should do is you should sing these things without adding a bunch of extra grace notes uh, or adding a bunch of extra vibrato. And he's constantly receiving pushback from that. He says when he's talking about how people are always thinking that he's doing the new thing, but really they're doing the new thing and uh, they should be singing it the way that he is writing it down and telling them to sing it because that's how it was originally written in these psalm books from the 17th century, but he got a lot of pushback. So uh, Bremner writes, Endeavoring once to convince an old man who was presenter in a country church, how absurd he rendered the music by allotting so many different sounds to one syllable, when there was only one intended, he replied with a good deal of briskness that he did not value what any man intended, and that he believed in the people, he believed the people of the present generation knew nothing of the matter his master was allowed to understand that affair thoroughly and he told him there ought to be eight quavers in the first note of the elgin tune anyway so here i'm going to play the elgin tune. so this is a hymn and i'm not really playing it uh as a hymn but uh sort of the state of music at the kind of before the money musk revival and before bremner i don't know that bremner is actually all that successful in getting people to not do this uh not kind of sing how they want but uh here is me playing uh, elgin on Allen pipes with all kinds of improvisations and extra vibrato and grace notes uh, in other words things that robert bremner would have hated So the way the evangelical revival plays out in Scotland is quite a bit different than what happens in New England. Uh, In New England, a society that used to be almost exclusively Puritans uh, or Congregationalists just kind of ceased to exist. Uh, While in the past everybody had been part of the congregation, now all of a sudden there were Methodists and Baptists and new kinds of religion creeping up all over the place. That doesn't seem to be what happens in Scotland at all. Uh, mostly people just leave the Church of Scotland for churches that had already left uh, the Church of Scotland, so it didn't create a new thing, is what it seems like. And in that sense, Bremner's attempt to get the Church of Scotland to kind of standardize psalms, you can see that that would be a real benefit um, if you've got, um, I like guess, a, a kind of dissenter's take on worship where who knows, like it's going to be different, right? But you've got the authority of the Church of Scotland behind you uh, where you can standardize things and that can be a selling point. And that's clearly what Bremner is saying, that like you should be able to go into a church anywhere in Scotland and hear the same songs performed the same way and beautifully and you should be able to join in on that singing. And if you standardize it and if the Official church gets behind it, you can enforce it. Um, Bremner says, like, we (laughs) one of Bremner's complaints is that the church dictates how they do everything else in the service. Why don't they dictate how they sing? Um, and so that's what he's arguing for. Bremner goes on to say that you know, we need to teach people how to read music, so school teachers they should be teaching their kids that Uh, maybe they have to do it after hours or before hours for free. They should do that because eventually those kids will be you know, wonderful singers, and, you know, the, the 20 minutes or an hour a day to teach them how to sing will be the best part of your day, even though you're not getting paid for it, um, which is a fun, <laughs> kind of a funny sentiment that doesn't sound all that dissimilar to, um, yeah, the way that educators are treated in the United States anyway, of like, no, just, just do the extra stuff, you know, it's, it'll, it, the work is its own reward, you don't need to be fairly compensated for your labor, um, but I think Bremner is probably a little bit closer to the mark of being accurate of just how hard it was to have access to music. So if you could train a choir up how to sing, well, it would be pretty nice. Um, so that's what he's, that's what he's arguing for. So the way to do that is not, you know, if you want to have good music, it is not through grace notes and embellishments and, and expression, but through kind of rigid copying of the music as written, including some stellar harmonies and, Uh, things that are built into it rather than somebody's individual expression. And so that is what Bremner is arguing for. It's why he publishes all of these psalms with four different parts. So uh, a couple tenors uh, and then a bass line and a con. I'm not sure what the con line stands for, but uh, a higher, higher version anyway. So I'm going to play another tune out of his his book there from 1755 or 56. Uh, and this one is a psalm uh, called Aberdeen, which seemed appropriate given the importance of Aberdeenshire and the Money Musk revival and kind of standardizing how these songs were done. Uh, so, Bremner calls this tune Aberdeen or St. Paul's. And I'm just going to play through it on whistles uh, to get all of the harmonies in place, except for the bass line. I didn't. Uh... So, this is three of the four parts that Bremner calls for. <laughs> me um it's really beautiful stuff they unfortunately i was using a much worse version of uh, the original just publication of church tunes before realizing the national library of scotland had a very beautiful cleaned up uh not cleaned up just a clean uh copy of this brenner's book that has all these tunes in the back of it and so the note was too distorted in reading the sheet music and so if you click through the link in the show notes to see it you'll see a spot where I play the wrong note but that's only because the version of the music I had was too distorted which um, I think is a great example of how paper is not permanent you know um, a fundamental problem doing native history a lot is this lack of paper documents and it can be a real trial to convince students and to kind of realize that you know there are problems with written records too and you know bremner hoped that by having this printed piece of music that it would be permanent and, and fixed in how choirs would perform it but you know even the paper got distorted and i could i interpreted the note wrong uh which is uh, another great uh, something poetic to me about that for poor mr bremner Anyway, let's move on to his next project. Similar to John Walsh, as we talked about several episodes back now, it feels like, Walsh benefited from getting a hold of Handel's music, and it's clear that Bremner will benefit from that as well. His first collection of music, of Scottish songs that I could find, uh, was written for voice and harpsichord, and the voice parts, the, the words, are all coming from Alan Ramsey, who will maybe get his own episode on this thing at some point. But Alan Ramsay is sort of the predecessor to Robert Burns, which might not be fair to either of them. Uh, but Ramsay wrote the first Scottish opera, The Gentle Shepherd, and was a poet and all kinds of cool things. But he contributed words to all the, the songs in here. The collection of tunes is all just, like, greatest hits of Scottish music in the 18th century and many of them still being pretty popular today so i'd highly recommend looking through that i had a hard time finding a tune in there that didn't have a bunch of other relationships that made me feel like the whole that tune should get a whole episode and so ultimately this is the same boat this is a tune called mary scott which is very well published and known and shows up in all kinds of printed collections and it's just beautiful so here is me playing mary scott from Bremner's collection of music published a little bit later. He published this when he was still in Edinburgh. He winds up moving to London after he's had quite a bit of success up in Edinburgh. Uh, He moves to London, I think, in 1762 and sets up shop on the Strand at the sign of the harp and hot boy, or hoboy, uh, which is the art for this week's episode, depending on where you're seeing it, is the harp and uh, oboe on his sign that I think hung outside of his shop could be wrong though, Uh, but it's from a receipt that Bremner gave out to one of his customers that I was able to find in the British Museum, so you can click through that and look at how much he's charging for music, if you like, as well. But anyway, this is from before the harp and the whole boy time, this is when he's still up in Edinburgh Publishing, and this is Mary Scott, good tune from the Borders region. beautiful tune, Mary Scott. So yeah, this is from 30 Scott songs for a voice and harpsichord. Uh, music taken from most genuine sets, extant, and the words from Alan Ramsey. So the version that I'm linking to in the National Library of Scotland was printed in London, but when Brumner moved to London, he took his plates with him, or at least some of them and can and was printing music down there too he also kept his shop open in edinburgh so i can't imagine he took all of the prints much like john walsh bremner is a fan of not including dates on his material Uh, i was sort of trying to piece together when things came out by looking at kind of the oldest ones i knew of and what he was advertising on the front page and from looking at uh an old collection of freemason songs i think this this collection comes out as one of the earlier ones another one of his earlier and probably more profitable collaborations is with william mcgibbon collaborations the wrong word uh once william mcgibbon dies bremner secured the rights to print his music i think is how that wound up happening uh william mcgibbon is a person that we've already played a couple tunes from on the podcast and he surely deserves a full episode like bremner here kind of discussing discussing him but bremner and mcgibbon both and oswald too i'd imagine just looking at his music are part of this tradition of europeans you know like um people that are going on the tour spending time in italy and knowing kind of italian music and then bringing it back to scotland and writing scottish music with italian influence on it And it was very popular in Edinburgh and Glasgow, and I would imagine other places as well. I think there's a tendency, uh, at least among Americans, uh, especially after certain depictions in television shows and movies, to think of Scotland as this kind of cut-off backwater, as opposed to what it was, which is incredibly tied into what's going on in Europe and the rest of the world, really. And I think Bremner and McGibbon and Oswald kind of show that quite well. So, McGibbon wrote his own music, uh, but he became probably more successful publishing uh, Scottish tunes that he would put his own flair onto. So, uh, in that collection of 30 songs for the voice and harpsichord, uh, Bremner includes a setting for a tune called. Um, she rose and loot me in or she rose and let me in but the setting that the key that he puts it on it's not a thing i could figure out how to play and do justice to on any instruments that i have around um so instead what we are going to do i'm going to play you the version of she rose and let me in from uh 1720s manuscript the area de camera which is probably contributed from uh, Scottish, Irish, and Welsh fiddlers that contributed to this song collection. Um, But anyway, so here is the area de camera setting for She Rose and Let Me In, uh, and then we'll play McGibbon's setting after that, so you can hear McGibbon's sort of Scottish-Italian influence on it. That tune shows up in lots of collections of Scottish music, um, so I, I think it is a, a Scottish tune. And so now we will go to McGibbon's setting for "She Rose and Let Me In." You'll hear quite a few more variations. some more mcgibbon tunes i wasn't quite ready to give up on mcgibbon after just one track so this is a setting for Cumbernold house into the bottom of the punch bowl uh, bottom of the punch bowl shows up in all kinds of printed collections including O'Farrell's, uh, which we will be getting back to one of these days anyway so here is william mcgibbon as printed by robert bremner in Cumbernold house and the bottom of the punch bowl haven't mentioned yet and should have um Robert Bremner is a fiddle player as is William McGibbon and that's really most of his music you know he'll say if it's for harpsichord or not but it seems like that's where he's most comfortable is uh, in fiddling or violin playing in his discussion of concert music he writes a whole thing very clearly about violin players or performers and then has like a paragraph saying oh and you know people that play wind instruments should be careful about how often they grace as well um so he's he's mostly a fiddle player but one thing that i've been really impressed by bremner setting kind of from the earliest days of, of looking at it is how much it seems like he is writing down highland pipe tunes um uh, for you know other instruments tunes that sit really well on highland pipes and clearly sit really well on ellen pipes too um but that's you know finding music that works for an ellen pipe is pretty easy because um, most music does it's a great instrument for that and definitely one that was being played all over scotland and england and ireland i think in the mid 18th century it's kind of the i think the repertoire of irish pipers is pretty diverse and uh, the presence of irish pipers in England and Scotland, I think is underappreciated, but we'll talk more about that later. But in terms of finding what our Highland bagpipers playing in the mid-18th century can be really challenging, but several of Remner's tunes just, they look like you could put them right into Donald MacDonald or Angus Mackay's settings and just add some grace notes and it's there, and several of the tunes show up there, like Clean Peas, Straw, Um... (sighs) I had a big long list and now I'm all that's coming to mind is clean Peace straw. But there are many tunes that we've already played on the podcast from Donald MacDonald or Angus Mackay's or William Gunn settings that are in Robert Bremner as well from the 1750s. So in terms of trying to find a possible repertoire for a bagpiper, right, that's sort of the goal of this podcast is to explore various types of music that could have been or likely were played by either Irish or Scottish pipers uh in the 18th century and i think bremner is one of the best resources for finding that for the 1740s 50s and 60s so um, the next tune i'm going to play this comes from bremner's own collection of tunes so there's sort of two bremner country dance books uh that are called that way as part of the john glenn collection at the national library of scotland one of them has a date on it of 1769 and the 1769 book includes the actual steps which is what most country dance books looks like. Here's the sheet music for it and then here's how to do the dance. This earlier one doesn't have the instructions for the dance. So um that's the the rest of the podcast is all me playing tunes out of Bremner's uh, Scots Reels and Country Dance Book except there's no dance instructions. So I think he just knew that that was a good like publishing genre was publishing country dance books, but he didn't have a dancing master with him yet. I'm not 100% sure. Well, maybe we'll talk about that in next week's episode, or or next full episode, rather, or just in general. Next time I do a deep dive in country dancing and Robert Bremner again. So with that being said about Highland Piping kind of coming easy to these, these tunes, this next set I'm going to play is The Blue Bridges on highland pipes and then i'm going to cut into another tune that you have certainly heard before because it is the intro music for the podcast uh, oyster wives rant so blue bridges into oyster wives rants both of which show up in uh, bremner's collection here as well and this is bremner being bremner uh, he's you know some stuff shows much of his tunes show up on other places but in john glenn's collection like his big discussion of where these tunes come from a lot of cases bremner is the first one we know of certainly the first like big published collection of these scottish tunes uh, bremner's the first guy to publish a stress bay that kind of style of music so anyway now we are fully uh, bremner on his own you know the church music he was copying 17th century manuscripts making very slight edits to them uh we've heard him and alan ramsey and him and mcgibbon but here we are with just robert bremner working on his lonesome with the tune blue britches into "Oysterwives' rant another bremner tune they're all bremner tunes i don't know why i keep saying here's a bremner tune uh, anyway this one is the carl came over the craft it also shows up in all kinds of other country dance collections in england and scotland as the carl came over the Croft uh, or the carl came over the craft uh, but it's a cool tune so here is the carl came over the craft on ill pipes if you want to hear it on highland pipes this is one of those tunes that will be on the short episode next week that I won't be advertising around. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you want to hear this tune on Highland Pipes. fond of that tune it really reminds me of an english hornpipe uh, and kind of the way it sounds one of my favorite kind of repeat visits on youtube is watching pete stewart play a tune called mr preston's hornpipe and uh yeah the carl kimmel of the craft really strikes me as that type of tune Uh, so i when i went looking it up i kind of expected to find out that it was a northumberland tune and not scottish um but yeah, it definitely shows up in other Scottish collections, so uh, I was surprised. But uh, anyway, thinking about border tunes and English hornpipes, I'm going to do another Brenner tune from this Scottish collection called Cuzzle Together. But uh, I messed with my small pipe a little bit. I decided to put a cork in the bottom and just play around with it. it seems like if you're going to have a D channer you should get the perks of that bubbly sound if you can get it. So here is Cuzzle Together. Finally, our last tune, uh, going to be right here at an hour long, and it is already 11.30, so <laughs> this is going to be hot off the presses when it gets uploaded for midnight, but this is Miss Blair's Reel. Uh, I, yeah, this was a fun tune to play, I'm always on the lookout for tunes with Blair in it, um, It's kind of fun when I was writing the notes for this episode, I wrote it as Miss Mary Blair's Tune or Miss Mary Blair's reel, which is my grandma's name, and then kind of had to remind myself, nope, not Mary Blair, just Miss Blair. But so maybe I'll call it Mary Blair's reel instead. But uh, yeah, anyway, here is Mary Blair's reel on Highland pipes. And once again, make sure to subscribe to the podcast because next week you will be able to hear Miss Blair's reel on Highland pipes as well. Uh, if you haven't, please consider giving us a review. We're still under ten ratings and reviews on iTunes and uh yeah love to hear from everybody feel free to keep sending me messages or emails and try to get back to you i've definitely owe a couple people some some responses it's been sort of a hectic week or two here in the united states uh but things seem to be going better than i expected uh anyway here is miss blaze Reel. thanks everyone for listening